This is the through line in all forms of conservatism, right? Fear and reaction. Everything boils down to fear, and she's pretty open about it. Yeah, but it's not fear of the afterlife. Now it's fear of, like, political opponents. Going down, everybody. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy. And Austin, can you say that line in your sleep? I uh, probably. I was worried after the long absence. I was like, man, I wonder if it's going to flow as well. And to be honest, it felt a little clunky coming out of my mouth, but <laughs> it's. Yeah, 100%. I don't think I'll ever forget it. It's like this toast that my friends and I used to have when we were like late teenagers into our early to mid-20s that is still, we still employ, you know, whenever we're back together. And it was something that I think like one of our, I think my buddy Jeff, his dad, his his dad's dad had like all of these like like sayings, right? Like he's like, I don't know where, I can't remember if he's Irish or Welsh, but he had like, you know how they're just so good with, the, they got the gift of the gab and they've got those oh, sayings yeah. that are just so, right? It's just part of like Celtic culture or something. I don't know. But he has all these toasts, like all these drinking toasts. And the one we used to use, um, I will never forget it. And I haven't even used it. I probably haven't uttered these words in forever, but it's here's to it from it and to it again. If you ever get to it and don't do it, may you never get to it to do it again. And we would do that. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah. And then we started teaching, you know, friends at parties and at bars. And I remember the day that we realized that we had an impact over the world was when we were out at a bar and we heard other people doing it. And we were like, that we didn't know. That you didn't we were know. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, and we didn't know them, so we went over and we started talking to them, and they had learned it from another friend of ours. And we're like, no way. And we had obviously taught that friend, you know, in years prior. So it's like, I'm just hoping that there's like some random bar, I don't know, like in France, and they're, they've, they're doing it in French. And like somehow some person traveled <laughs> and taught them and, you know, that like it's going to be multilingual and that people just use it. But by the way, I'm bequeathing this now to the audience here's to it and from it and to it again if you ever get to it and don't do it may you never get to it to do it again and then you slam the drink back so yeah, that, <laughs> it's perfectly that ambiguous our too because it could mean anything that's right because what is it what is this it that you are toasting <laughs> exactly but um it's pretty it's like that and the intro to this podcast are things that are just ingrained into my psyche forever so oh Nice. Well, welcome everybody. This week we are going to be delving into um, and a topic that is probably near and dear to our heart in ways that we will never be able to explain, but that will probably come out through the course of the discussion. But um, the relationship between Christianity and civilization and culture and politics and why other things like that. How how else would you describe it, Troy? Yeah, real real small stuff, real intimate, interpersonal <laughs> stuff. You know, not. Not Clash of Civilizations type stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely going to get into some Clash of, clash of Civilizations <laughs> stuff. Um, but it basically, it started from an article um, that was written by a really kind of former, a prominent former new atheist. And um, it, she's recently had a conversion into Christianity. I don't know if you're familiar. We won't say too much about it. But it's uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali who wrote an essay in Unheard called Why I Am Now a Christian. And she kind of famously converted out of Islam 
uh, to become an atheist and what, like a really kind of prominent, outspoken one. And she was, of course, held up by the new atheists because she was like the one that got away from the bad, the bad Muslim culture, right? From bad Muslim civilization. And, um, and, and now she has converted into Christianity sort of in an interesting way. So her article was called Why I'm Now a Christian. And then the subtitle is Atheism Can't Equip Us for Civilizational War. So that's what we're going to be talking about in our main segment. Uh, but yeah, any, any housekeeping stuff before we get going, dude? Yeah. We just want to mention that if you want to support us, our Patreon is back up after our long hiatus. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. You can support us there and get access to some special goodies. And we do want to shout out new patrons that we have. It's a tradition that we're starting recently since we, um, got things back together again. So Thanks to Mark Jackson for recently becoming a patron. I'm really hoping that's Mark Jackson, Wait. the former NBA player. <laughs> yeah. um, because I, I'm pretty sure I've talked a lot of shit about Mark Jackson on this podcast before. Uh, so I'm, I'm yeah. hoping that there's no way to like, I, I, you can't really like search our transcripts, right? So I don't think Mark's going to find that stuff. But uh, if so, yeah. just, just remember, Mark, you're probably not the Mark Jackson that we're thinking of. Um, so it's not about you. Nothing personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't take it personally because it's the other Mark Jackson. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sweet. Well, but, cool. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, before we get into the talking about, you know, small stuff like civilization uh, clashes and stuff, we need to do uh, what we always do to start the podcast, um, which is the shitty minute. That's the part of the show where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So, Austin, let's got you down. Uh, yeah, so I tweeted about it a little bit. You and I were just talking about it off air. I've also got an article coming out in Jacobin about this, um, but there was uh, an issue, uh, an instance, another instance among many that are taking place across the world of stifling support for Palestine um, that took place here in Sydney um, that was like really near and dear to my heart. And basically, there is a theater company called Sydney Theater Company, and they're kind of the most prestigious theater company in Australia and one of the most um, kind of well-known and prestigious in the world. Um, a lot of famous, you know, Hollywood actors, you know, notably you have either gotten their start there or continue to either work there or um, like support it. You know, like Kate Blanchett is really heavily involved and Hugo Weaving mm. is on the board and Mia Wasikowska and Tim Minchin and many, 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 many others, right, have been involved with Sydney Theatre Company or are still involved with Sydney Theatre Company. And essentially three actors, they... Uh, War Kafia's on opening night of the most recent flagship performance of this year. It was Chekhov's The Seagull, and they War Kafia's during the ovation. And um, long story short, uh, a little bit of a hullabaloo was kicked up because of this, and pro-Israeli donors and supporters and subscribers um, pulled their funding out, board members left, and the theater company publicly censured the actors, not siding with their you know right to expression or the right to have an opinion. Uh, it was a big fucking hullabaloo, and people can read about it more, and um, I just think it's really disgraceful. And and the thing is, that the thing that I don't get to touch on in my article, the thing that is like kind of most, that, that infuriates me most of all, is that it isn't just about like censoring speech and censoring what you can say, but like the artist in that that vulnerable activity, and this is one of the things that I just think like journalism doesn't get and the, the media doesn't get and that the, the public doesn't always get but like when you're an artist 
you your whole self goes into the performance, especially live performance, right? That's what's so fucking brilliant about a play. A play is literally like these creatives from the backstage crew that are like cueing light changes to the front of house staff, to uh, the actors on stage, to costumes, prop people. Like it's literally about like the real people who are involved in the performance. And w- the audience only ever sees the performance because that's the point. But that's why like Brechtian performance is so great because it like calls attention to the fact that the facade is a facade, right? But you can never, no matter how great the play is and no matter how much you suspend your imagination, you can never truly hold the facade forever because you also realize that these are just people that are standing in front of you, sometimes like a couple you know, feet in front of you. And so the reality of life beyond the imaginary is, is part and parcel and tied up into every aspect of live performance, right? No matter how much actors are lost in their character and how immersive the set is and yada, yada, yada. That's not the point of live theater. Live theater is this like risky, bold performance with, that you're you're exposing yourself to that reality that is is like always there, that's bursting through the the kind of facade. And um, so it's it's beyond just like that this 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 hubbub and the censoring of these actors. It's beyond just them being censored for you know wearing the kafias as like a, a, a symbolic gesture or some sort of symbolic stand of solidarity. It, what it turns into is like a policing of how these actors, whose job is to share their emotional expression, it's how they're allowed to do that. And it creates this real culture of fear around even like what you're able to fear. And I think one of my biggest frustrations and something that I don't get to highlight in the article, um, just because of you know the limits and restraints and audience and stuff like that, because this is much more at like a theoretical level, is that like what happens is is a lot of actors and a lot of artists feel like they can't stand up because these gatekeepers, these powerful gatekeepers who hold in your hands your very precarious dreams and they can they can silence through through like fear and intimidation your own ability to feel care for other humans who are experiencing suffering. And that's the thing that that feels even more insidious because it almost gaslights people, you know, like you hear this like pushback that's like, no, you know, we're going to silence it all in the name of like protecting, you know, culture against anti-Semitism, which again is the conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which itself has a long, a long problematic history that, that we could talk about in for days, right? But like, but but in doing that, what you end up doing is kind of like making these actors feel like they've done something wrong, Right in standing in solidarity because of their care, because of their kind of like emotional need to express solidarity with people who are suffering. And these actors were not like, they're not like political activists, like not that they don't have activist streaks to them, but more than anything, they're just like advocates of peace, you know? And they're just like advocates for a ceasefire, like very basic. They, they probably, some of them might have like more formulated political and social and philosophical and theoretical ideas, maybe. But even at a more basic level, the artistic expression is about like standing in solidarity through an emotional resonance because of a felt sense of care and rational compassion with people who are suffering. And to silence that, that feels even more insidious because that's just like another layer that isn't really discussed. And then when you wrap that up with this culture of fear because you have these people in power who are like the gatekeepers, then that that, that just that's just like this weird power dynamic and it creates this weird nexus that... Um, I just find really 
um, I, I find it really dangerous, you know? And if actors can't feel free, if artists can't feel free to, to feel and then figure out ways to express that feeling, um, then what you end up with is, uh, well, maybe this is like kind of like, you know, the Benjaminian, Benjaminian kind of critique of, you know, like, uh, like art at, in the service of totalitarian, totalitarian ends, right? Or in the service of fascism, propagandic, propagandistic fascism or something. There's something, there's some sort of cross resonance there. But, but yeah, that's the shitty minute is, is that like a world where artists can't fucking just be free to feel and what, in whatever direction that goes is, is, a, is a world that um, I think is, is dangerously moving in a direction um, that we ought not to go. And now here, of course, of course the retort is yes, but also these people, they have like pre-existing, you know, conceptual ideas that determine and, and influence how they feel things. I'm aware of that. Obviously that's the case. But nevertheless, that's the whole point of the messy dialectic of like the artistic expression, right? Is is you have to allow for those things to be expressed and to engage in a format and in a space like live theater where that's supposed to take place and where it will seep through in the reality of it beyond just like the content of the quote unquote like show, you know? So that's the shitty minute. Yeah, it's interesting that we'll talk more about this next week, but the interesting sort of through line between stuff like what you're talking about happening in Australia and the stuff happening here in the U.S., especially on the sort of elite college campuses, but elsewhere too, uh, and in journalism especially, the journalism industry, is you can tell that um, there's like the pro-Zionist side is, is losing the argument um, and losing mm. legitimacy. And so right. the what's coming behind that to make up the difference is just pure policing power, right? Um, we're just going to punish until you do right. what you say because we don't have an argument to make anymore. And, you know, I'm sure the other side would say like, well, you know, what is BDS if not like using power to, you know, like naked power or whatever. But even like BDS is always um, like backed up by an argument. Right. Like we're, we're going to withdraw uh, any sort of passive or active support from this thing because of these reasons. Right. It's always coming prepackaged with an argument about about justice. Um, and that's not what's happening here. This is just like we're going to punish you until you do what we want. Um, hmm. Yeah. So that it, it's I think it's it's fairly clear that like when when the, when the powerful side loses its, you know, propagandistic legitimacy, um, it has to resort to this kind of a thing. Mm. Yeah, it 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 almost makes me wonder. Remember, remember, like within the past couple of years, you know, when uh, like there's been like pushback against kind of like more more gender based um, conversations for 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 equality and, and equity and things like that, and you hear uh, the kind of saying that it's like oh, when there's pushback against it, and it's like, well, that's just because you've been in a position of privilege and for those who are privileged equality feels like oppression sort of thing is that the mm -hmm. you know that kind of pit, pithy kind of remark or that formulation it does yeah. feel like there's something similar going on here that the israeli lobby and um deputies for for unwavering israeli support that have been insinuated within cultural institutions around the world or especially the anglo world right let's say um they they for, for a very long time have experienced a pretty comfortable place of privilege you know on board 
in on board in boardrooms and on mastheads of of periodicals and and publications and um, in executive suites and things like that, you know, which is one of like you you hear this. I heard Sam Sater talking about this. You know, that was talking about like the difference between like Israeli Jews and you know Western Western Jews who are living in these places where they're not under constant threat or they don't have that fear of threat that they're going to be attacked from you know the north or the east right and or the south or, or whatever um but that you know if you're jewish and you live in the united states or in australia or the uk relative to that you are in like an extremely blessed and privileged position and because of those nations kind of unwavering support of israel and therefore of um by extension sort of jewish cultural deputies that are that are um you know spread out around the world um the the palestinian voice has been kind of marginalized entirely and yeah there's always been minority support within like lefty circles or activist circles and things like that but this is like maybe the first time that literally the majority especially in australia the majority of the polls are showing that like overwhelmingly people support a ceasefire right and overwhelmingly, people are kind of siding with stopping Israeli aggression, which it's like maybe it's, you know, a, a new generation of people. And maybe it's because we have just, you know, transparent, like real time information fed through social media. But it's like the first time that there's been this massive concerted pushback in mass in majority against that really comfortable position of unwavering support for Israel and Israel's causes. Um, and maybe that feels like, you know, like it's a threat. And, and I can get also from that side why it's like, uh-oh, this is how it starts, you know? Like, we we have to, to stamp out the anti-Semitism in our midst, otherwise the anti-Semitism on our social fabric is just going to be released, Right. And I can I can see that as well, but I think that's maybe where it is. It, that's like where the felt thing is coming from. But I think just descriptively, like that's kind of that's kind of a new phenomenon, and that does probably feel like for some people it's like, oh, but wait a second, we need to have like you know equality of human existence between you know Palestinian Arabs and uh, Israeli Jews and you know whomever else, and that might feel like some sort of oppressive position if you're used to being in a privileged position. Yeah, it's also just, I mean, even on a more superficial level, uh, getting support for Israeli policies in the U.S. used to be a slam dunk. You didn't have to, you didn't have to do anything, <laughs> right? It's bipartisan. <laughs> it's like everyone agrees. You know, you don't really have a, and you, I guess Noam Chomsky, like don't, you know, talk to him because, you know, he'll, you know, rip you a new one. But otherwise, like you're fine. And all of a sudden it all came, comes crashing down. And support is wavering week to week, right? Um, and it seems like, I mean, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on in the upper levels of the U.S. government, but it seems like the State Department has lots of internal tension or dissension um, mm. on the issue. And even in the military, it seems like a lot of the military advisors who have you know gone over to Israel are basically coming back saying, like, they're not gonna, they have no idea what they're doing. Like, they're not going to win. Like, they're going to kill a lot of people, Right. But they're not going to win the war. Like they're not going to eradicate Hamas. They're just going to create more Hamas. Um, mm. Like we we learned these lessons, right? Um, you know, if we couldn't do it uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, then you're like you're not going to do it. Um, yeah. So it seems like um, it's really just a, a, like a you know not a few people, but the highest levels of government, especially you know the executive 
um, department that's pushing for unconditional support, even while admitting it's not going to work. It seems like Biden's been kind of the last few. It's hard to tell because Biden kind of like you know uh, talks like a like a like a three year old, but um, it seems <laughs> like he's even saying like, yeah, it's not going well. Like, yeah, it seems like they kind of want to eradicate like you know all of Palestine and all Palestinians, not just Hamas. <laughs> But you know, yeah, you know, we kind of got to support him anyway. So whatever. Like we've been doing it for forty yeah, years. Saying, like you know, inertia is a bitch. Yeah, right? yeah. His his thing the other day. Did you hear his speech? He's like, you know, I, I met BB, you know, when I was a thirty two year old senator, and I told him, you know, I I basically disagree with pretty much everything you think, but I but I support you nonetheless, sort of thing. And he's like, and it's basically it's it's still like that today. <laughs> it's like lovely. Well, wait a second, you're the president, dude. <laughs> You do have the opportunity to change the tide of things, you know? But, yeah, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, I know. It's a mess. And I think, like you said, we're probably going to talk more about this next week, you know, after the article comes out. And we can kind of look at that. Um, as well as maybe even talk about, like, a couple other, like, earlier drafts or th- other things that I've been writing in conjunction with it. Because some things that that just wouldn't be... Um, appropriate for like the kind of Jacobin journalistic approach are things that are much more on the theoretical side that I, I think are important. And one of the things is you mentioned it, it's like kind of policing. And like, I think this is where the work of Paul Livingston is really interesting. When he talks about policing the sayable, if you have the capacity to draw limits around that, which is sayable versus that, which is not sayable, then you can kind of erect yourself as some sort of immune subject position outside of that that is controlling those limits perpetually in the service of kind of a, you know, a biased political program. And that's, you're, you're seeing that played out here. And he gives some, I think, some interesting theoretical reasons for understanding how that happens and how it actually operates in his book, Politics of Logic. So maybe, maybe we can even just read like a little section of that for it. What do you think? Yeah, dude, that'd be fun. I've always, I've really wanted to okay. read that book. It's been on my to be to read this for a long time, but I haven't been able to get to it. Okay, well, maybe we can just kind of check out. Just there's like a, a handful of the introduction of the book is where he kind of like lays out his whole theoretical apparatus that he borrows from Alain Bedu, and then um, the rest of the book is is much more nitty gritty that I think you'll really enjoy because he really walks that divide between like analytic and continental voices, mm-hmm. and so. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe we do that because I because I do think there's something really interesting in this, this policing the sayable or even policing the feelable, like what you're able to feel. Um, and I think there's something really interesting in how that relates to a certain type of logic of politics. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sick. Well, let's get into the main segment, dude. Do you want to set it up? I think probably you should because you you um, sent this to me and I didn't know anything about. Um, who uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali was until you uh, told me about her. So maybe you should intro the article. Okay. Cool. Well, so I first found it because I was listening to um, a podcast with a guy who wrote a defense of it, Sarab Amari. Do you ever, do you know Compact Magazine? The kind of like, I don't know how you describe it. It's like they're trying to critique the left and the right kind of is it part of the new right new conservative left i don't do you know much about it yeah i know the magazine but i don't know very well yeah so they have a podcast that i listen to sometimes and um saraba mari is a is a um kind of conservative commentator and he's one of the founders of 
uh, compact, and he wrote a defense, and they talked about it on the podcast, uh, a defense of uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali. And so I was really curious because both of us, and uh, you know, I, I thought it'd be good to talk about because both of us kind of come out of a Christian background, and I think we have very uh, long-standing, sustained critiques of of Christian civilization in its in its evangelical kind of we could use maybe loaded terms like colonial imperial mission and um and it was interesting because that's so much of the critique that comes against christianity especially in more recent years uh you know it does exist obviously in post-colonial literature and liberation theology and 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 all kinds of other things and critiques you know of course outside of of christianity for a very long time but um the the irony was that both um, Ayan Hirsi Ali and Sarab Amari, their defense of the value of Christianity was precisely because of its capacity to be a bulwark for Western civilization. And um, I found that so interesting because there's a lot of discussion right now um, on university campuses, but also in the media more broadly about the value and the importance of preserving Western culture against this putative onslaught, right, of the, of like the, the woke left or of like anti-racist, um, you know, post-colonial initiatives that are trying to erode Western civilization. And you oftentimes hear this by these commentators that it's like, and they're trying to just destroy the West, you know? And hey... In some ways, people are, <laughs> you know, um, but I think it's it's worth kind of discussing one, maybe that impetus of the critique of the West and by extension, the critique of Christianity as being part and parcel and constitutive of the Western logic. And then also this, this pushback to try to preserve the value of Christian civilization, right? And I think... The reason that framing is important is one of the things that Ayan Hirsi Ali states in her argument and that Sarab Amari defends is that some Christians were critical of her because she doesn't really document a, a personal conversion narrative. You know, she doesn't talk about the fundamentals of the faith. She doesn't talk about the Apostles' Creed. She doesn't talk about um, any sort of repentance or anything like that that characterizes so much of Christian orthodoxy. For her, it's simply as she says right here um hold on what she's like quotes it explicitly is that this is a sort of global issue so she says why do i call myself a christian and she says part of the answer is global western civilization is under threat from three but related forces the resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the chinese communist party and vladimir putin's russia the rise of global islamism which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West, and the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. So it's almost like her, her turn to Christianity takes some of the shit from the new atheists, like Sam Harris's you know, Islamophobia, and her own experience, she grew up Muslim, right? Um, and so she speaks from that. So it's like that, that trying to fight against the rise of global Islamism that threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West, right? That's kind of like that fear that's drudged up. Um, 
within kind of new atheist circles. So she's kind of retained that and then added to that a sort of unipolar defense against emerging multipolarity in geopolitics against like China and Russia and that sort of, um, you know, Sino-Russian, you know, fear. And then add to that, you know, anti-wokeism. And so Christianity is the the answer is the cure as a sort of thing that gives her meaning and it gives her purpose and that stands up as a bulwark against those things. So I just think that's a really interesting framing and I'll stop there and, and turn it over to you for a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really hard to know where to start with this because there's one thing that I, I noted down that I think she actually said that I think is correct. And then a lot of other stuff is just kind of infuriating. <laughs> and I and I wanna <laughs> and I wanna give, you know, like I, I very much believe in synthesis and like trying to find the good in things and 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 there is something that I want to tease out that I think is is, you know, a a, a rational response to reality um at the at like the bottom level. Um but here's just a taste of of what could be infuriating about this this whole thing. Here's a quote. To win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. Presumably the answer in the next paragraph is Christianity. Hmm. So so the project is to win the hearts and minds of Muslims in the West by converting them to Christianity. Like Civil, well, civilizational Christianity. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Democ- but which, which is what like <laughs> dem- democracy and civic values and things like that. But it's not. It's not just that, right? It's also conservative Christianity. Like, imagine thinking, um, I was oppressed as a woman in Kenya by the Muslim Brotherhood, which of course is you know entirely accurate. Not doubting that whatsoever. Um, and then saying like. American Christianity, that's going to that's gonna win over the hearts and minds of women who are looking for liberation. It's like, ha- have you seen what's happening in America by Christians um, when it comes to women's rights? Like, that's the enemies at home, bro. <laughs> um, I, don't think, I don't think people like that are dying from ectopic pregnancies in the U.S. are like, yeah, global Islamism, that's what's coming for me, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, so just the, the kind of myopia about like anything. And I know she's she's not talking specifically from an American perspective, right? Um, but just the idea that like you're gonna win over the hearts and minds of Muslims by like giving them Christianity is like, well, yeah, I, I just that, that almost doesn't really pass the like the laugh test for me as like a uh, an idea that makes any sense. Also, just the entire setup seems to assume like the the clash of civilizations thing, right? Like there's mm. author, there's authoritarianism, wokeism. And global Islam on one side, and then there's like <laughs> civilizational Christianity and democracy on the other. And it's like, well, can, can we can we talk a little bit about history? Like the idea mm. that that Islam and Christianity are on the opposite side of a civilizational mm-hmm. uh, clash is historically myopic. I mean, yes, where where did Christians learn about? Like science and math, which is what you know. Part yeah, of, it's gonna be really interesting like- when she reads Aquinas and they, <laughs> she quotes, you know, and he quotes the most prominent Muslim philosophers of the day, and you're like, oh shit! <laughs> and not just quotes; like he learns the importance of like Aristotelian um, pursuit of, of scientific and mathematical knowledge from Muslims, right? He, he's like, yeah. He reads Where does them natural and it's like, law oh, come then, from? <laughs> yeah. Um, so just you know, 
the entire idea here, and this is very common in conservatives, right, is that religion yeah. and culture, but especially religion as part of culture, is the leading phenomenon and politics is the trailing phenomenon. And that's just false, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not like a historical materialist or a dialectical materialist. I don't think it's the opposite, where politics or economics is like the, the leading phenomenon and all of culture is the trailing phenomenon. It's all just ephemeral, right? But, but conservatives are often the, 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 the flipped upside down version of Marxism in this way, right? Or like, you know, brute, brute Marxism or whatever you want to call vulgar Marxism. Um, and so the, the idea here is like, well, yeah, you're going to have to ignore the fact that like Islam had science and math and, and like civilization as we know it before Christianity did, right? And Christianity in many, in many like uh, ways sort of copied its form of civilization from that, right? So what even is the West here is what I always struggle with when people are talking about that. They never actually do like an explanation of what the West is. I mean, what they usually mean is like whatever, whatever is like the through line from Greek experiments and ancient Greek experiments in democracy, ignore stuff for like a thousand years. Don't worry about talking about Islamic civilization. And eventually you get to like Descartes and the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, right? Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler or whatever. And then you talk about, you know, the Enlightenment, like philosophers and experiments in democracy and, and stuff like that. Liberal values, you know, right to the uh, governed and um, all that kind of stuff, right? And it's like, right. that's that's so whack because that means like, because these are the same people who like think, you know, Kant and Hume are kind of skeptics of the Enlightenment, right? I mean, Kant even gets famously sometimes parodied out as like the, the origin of critical theory by, by some conservatives, right? Um, and it's like, well, if Kant and Hume aren't part of your Enlightenment Western tradition, then I, I don't know who even is anymore. Right? Mm, um, mm. There's just, there is no such thing as the West, I guess, is the point. And so people who stake their entire career and thought process on defending a thing that doesn't exist. I, I don't even know how to like, it seems like it's, it's talking to a person who's kind of like, it's like, not that they are insane. I'm not, I'm not claiming that, but it's kind of like they're like, they have a whole belief system that I, I don't even know how to get the reference of. Cause there is no reference. There is no such thing as the West. <laughs> I don't even know what yeah. to say to the claim that we have to defend the West even means. Yeah. And, and it seems like, what what they're living like your appeal to hey what about history is actually really important because it's it's like they're they're simply just camping at these levels of abstractions based on these sort of like imagined conceptual containers where it's like islam is this thing christianity is that thing um the west is this thing um you know the non-west you know, barbarism is that thing, you know, and it's backwards. And, and, you know, we need to make sure that we stop the encroachment of this stuff into, you know, these, these great things that this other thing figured out a long time ago. And we need to preserve that other thing, you know, uh, against these things. But all that does is it's just like Bertel Ullman has this great uh, notion of violent abstraction that I love. And that's, that's kind of what it does. It just cuts off the complexity of these things and the interwovenness of of these these phenomena, these historical phenomena, and these these ways of thinking and living and being and experiencing, you know, and all in the name. That, that's what makes me wonder: in the name of what, right? Like, I, I don't believe that that thought 
is ever just innocent. And I don't ever believe that analysis is innocent, right? So I'm always kind of thinking, maybe this is where like my Deleuze comes in because this notion that he has of what he calls the image of thought, or sometimes it could be called like the dogmatic and moral image of thought, um, is that, you know, thought isn't just pure in itself and it doesn't it doesn't just like tend towards the true or the good, right? <laughs> so so there's there's this sense in which, you know, I wonder if um I wonder, like, what is this all in the service of? And it's it seems to me that there's clearly some sort of, like, sociopolitical um, agenda, for lack of a better term, that is kind of driving her defense of this and then a lot of other people's defense of this. Because cause even when she talks about Islam, I mean, she talks about her experience growing up in the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism, but then in that quote that you mentioned where it's like, you know, to win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. So then she switches, right? So it's like, we can't counter Islamism. So it's like Islamism in her mind is going to be like this encroaching thing that is going to get our Western Muslims, right? And so we got to make sure that we get to the Western Muslims before Islamism does. And, and, and the whole thing for her is that we have to be able to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses by offering them something meaningful, as meaningful as the kind of Islamist story is. And that's the Christian story, which is which is really strange in a bunch of different ways because then the equation is kind of actually there with like the Muslim Brotherhood and the power of its unifying story and Christianity with its powerful unifying story. So even like the equation there is, I, I don't think she means to make that, that equation, but... but she does. And and all in the name of kind of like just messily grabbing at concepts, to, I think, to ultimately um, kind of offer a conception of Christianity that you could only offer if you're somebody that's new to this way of thinking because you think it serves some instrumental purpose, right? Like for people who grew up in Christianity, for people who have lived within it, they don't speak about it in this way en masse, right? Or I should say, people who grew up in it and then have left it, right? <laughs> they don't speak about it in this way because they also understand that that Christianity can't just simply be reducible to some sort of civilizational good because they've experienced the not good from it, right? Which doesn't mean that you discard it entirely, yada, yada, yada. But the way that she's speaking about it is from a sort of like naive, dogmatic perspective and it just makes me wonder, like, if you start pulling at that thread, I don't think it ultimately, like, holds up. I think it, it's, it's ultimately in service of some sort of, like, like cultural agenda. Yeah, it's also just, I mean, I, I don't want this to sound like I'm, I'm trying to say that this is entirely in bad faith or whatever. But the idea of saying, like, here's all these horrible things that are happening in horrible movements, right-wing movements, authoritarian movements, whatever, right? Um I really want something that's a bulwark against that. I tried atheism. It didn't work. I'm, I'm trying Christianity now. It's working better, right? And it's like, is that is that really what's being – and I don't want to police what like being a Christian is, right? Because that's not my place or whatever. But and I think some of the um, – you mentioned that there's been some backlash against her basically treating Christianity as like a suit to wear to protect oneself rather than like a thing that's in, in, intrinsically um, – attractive for its own sake or like transforms your values 
right? This, this variant seems like someone who had a set of values. They were looking for something to meet and they're trying Christianity now and, and they're finding that it's, that it's, that it's working well or something like that. Um, which, and, and, and typically, you know, uh, people in, in the church right now, our, our own experience is that like, that would be met with lots of skepticism because yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound like someone whose values have been transformed by, by conversion the Holy Spirit. or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's some forms of Christianity that lean more into that and some less. Right. But there's, there's, there's definitely a through line in almost every form of Christianity, except for maybe the most milk toast like mainland Protestantism, where it's like this should change you in an important way and in some way kind of take away your power over what you think and what you value about life. Like it's, there's a transformation that has to occur, right? That's, that's like, you know, um, born again, you know, John 3 as it gets, right? So mm. it's something that just comes across kind of weird about thinking of Christianity as like, this is going to help solve our political problems. Well, I mean, do you really need the Christianity then? It doesn't even seem like it. It seems like all you really need is like a, a kind of deism where God orders the world and sort of, you know, purposes it in a certain really general abstract kind of way and then kind of lets it go and that's it. You don't need anything specifically Christian about that. In fact, it seems to me like a kind of medieval Muslim theology would actually serve just as well <laughs> um, at doing some of this exactly. stuff as, yeah. as Christianity. Yeah, which is, I think, goes to the heart of one of the interesting things is that she, it's like she she castigates um, Muslims in her experience because she, you know, refers to uh, Bertrand Russell's kind of famous elaboration of, of religion as being just driven by by fear, right? And And, you know, once you can get rid of the fear of punishment in the afterlife, then you're totally freed up from that that kind of stranglehold of fear. But is she not just replacing one fear for another fear, right? Like, like her fear is now the fear of woke ideology and the fear of China and Russia and the fear of Islamism, right? All in the name of this, this other thing. And so it's still driven by a similar kind of like weak-willed resentment, is it not? Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is the through line in all forms of conservatism, right? Fear and reaction. Everything boils down to fear, and she's pretty open about it. She's just like, yeah, Bertrand Russell said all religion is based on fear, and I think that's kind of right. <laughs> um, it just turns out that atheism isn't the solution because you can't just replace fear with reason. Uh, you need yeah, but it's not fear of the afterlife. Now it's fear of like political exactly. opponents. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's again, this like this grand, and we, we call it clash of civilizations, but ultimately what it comes down to is this, this understanding of the world such that there are good forces and there are evil forces, never the twain shall meet, and they're in opposition to one another and you need to fight on the side of the good, right? Rather than seeing, yeah. and then, you know, you could replace that by just saying you'd give up on the, on the categories of good and evil entirely, which is what, you know, I guess the atheist perspective tried to do. And I think or what she thought the atheist perspective would try to do, right? Just replace the whole thing with reason. That didn't work though. And I think she's right about that. Like she says, and I quote here, atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? The God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. 
The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses, offering them spurious reasons for being and action. She's right about that. I she's think, right. Actually. I was going to say, I fucking agree <laughs> with that. Yeah. <laughs> she's totally she's totally right about that. And then yeah. she goes on to talk about some bullshit later after that. But that, that, that basic point that atheism wasn't able to um, resolve the problem. And so now you had to go back to the good versus evil thing just with a different different meta narrative of good, right? That's, mm. I think, bad, right? Um, but the point there is just like it's it's neither, um, you know, Manichaean good versus evil as absolutes constantly in clashing forever, right? Um, or give up on those notions entirely and just assume that there's, you know, reasonable triumph if you follow it to its logical end. It won't give you that logical end. And she's right about that. It won't. Um mm. The mistake seems to me to be to, to just go back to the old formula just with a new input, right? A new mm-hmm. a new input to the variable. Let me ask you this. Devil's advocate. And this goes to kind of Sarabamari's defense of Ali. So, you know, you were talking about like Christians would be skeptical of, you know, the kind of like lack of a profession of faith and the John 3 kind of thing. What about... Is there a way to defend her position as being a sort of James conception of, well, you have faith, uh, I will show you my faith by my works. So maybe she can't, maybe she just yet, like she says in the article, she's like, hey, I'm still learning about this faith and I learn more every Sunday, yada, yada, yada. I mean, I don't know if that's just platitude or what, but let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say she's young in this journey. She's learning uh, her understanding of Christianity and like what it means even personally is going to continue to grow. But the defense of like the civilizational works, let's say, could that not also be a kind of like orthodox Christian position from within like the 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 kind of work based approach? Now, granted, it's it's wrapped up in the civilizational fight, but that that this is very much like the Augustinian, you know, city of God the works of the city of God type of mission. And is that not actually in some ways very orthodox? I guess what, what I'm having trouble with, and there, part of this is just the ambiguity of the West, right? And so there's like, you know, American Christianity is very different than European Christianity. Um, and so maybe this idea of civilizational Christianity makes a little more sense in a European context that's largely secular anyway. So like a kind of secularized, washed over Christianity is, is much more apparent, right? Um, and there's much more, you know, there's, there's, there's more, um, Muslims in Western Europe than, than in the States. Um, so you, maybe there's like, there's, there's more like of the, of the actual clashing that's happening at the level of local policy or whatever, um, than happens in the States. But in the States, at least, it seems like, I mean, why would you think Christianity is going to be the bulwark for, for secular values? In the States, that seems like just obviously untrue and just even like the opposite of the truth, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, lots of – and this isn't you know a universal statement, but it seems like the forces um, acting against secular liberal values are almost entirely Christian, right, and motivated um, religiously. So I just don't know why, why Christianity would be the thing. And so she makes this, these claims mm. about how like, you know – the, the the liberal values came up in the context of um, sort of Christian culture, right, and Christian um, nations, and 
there's a sense in which that's true, right? Um, but there's also a sense in which, you know, the the proponents of of like enlightenment liberal values were often having to argue against their Christian opponents, right? Um, mm-hmm. And certainly wouldn't be seen as sort of like friends of especially conservative Christians um, today. So it's, it's just yeah, there's a lot of history here that has to be sort of dealt through. That's just being kind of washed over. Uh, easily, which is, you know, unfortunately typical, I think, of um, a lot of Christian conservatives when it comes to history, just kind of nodding at um, historical events and then assuming there's some truth there that there's there's never actually like excavating work to do. Uh, I don't know. What what do you think about this, this idea of, you know, I guess I, I'm not even sure entirely what the question is going for, this idea that a kind of works-based Christianity would manifest as secular liberal culture. Is that the idea? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how? I think <laughs> well, because I think they would see it as not secular liberal culture. I think the defense is, is that it's a sort of reclamation of maybe Burkean conservatism, which, which I'm seeing a lot of, right? Like there is... Another article that I read in the the same outlet where Ali's little opinion piece was um, just recently came out from I can't remember the author's name, but she was writing about what she's calling like conservative leftism, which for her is like bringing um, Wendell Berry kind of social and environmental sensibility in line with. Um, critiques of of consumer culture critiques of capitalism you know maybe like william william morris style um sort of what what was it red red toryism right um kind of thing and and i think you're seeing a lot of this and the the whole kind of new right quote unquote i think is grounded in this where it's like okay well we still want to critique you know, we want to critique capitalism and its excesses and its, like, attendant consumerism. and um, But what that ends up turning into is a sort of revindication of nationalism, of, of civic duty, you know, kind of these, these older kind of maybe conservative conceptions of, of social political and even economic arrangements and so i don't think they would see it as like liberal secularism i would i think they would see liberal secularism as a sort of perversion maybe um or maybe like like the obverse of the sort of the the kind of um the kind of conservatism that they're offering which is which is not which is not like American Pat Robertson, and it's not neoliberalism, and it's not neocon kind of shit. You know, it's 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 something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely not secularism. I'm misspeaking by saying that, but it's like saying we can have some of the liberal values, uh, and in fact, secularism in a sense almost works against it because it doesn't give you any justification for those values. Right? Yeah, exactly. That 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 that's her claim about um, atheism being unable to ground meaning and purpose in life. Um, but of course, the liberal values don't tell you about meaning and purpose either. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Which I guess is the point, right? Is that you need you need like the religious infrastructure to give you some concrete 
um, like plans to incorporate into what you think meaning and purpose is in life, which is, I think, I think she's totally right about the fact that um, atheism isn't going to get you those things, right? Um, again, I mean, like ha- having been inside the Christian worldview, um, it, it does give you concrete things to do that are that are supposed to be infused with meaning, and some of them are infused with meaning and purpose. But that meaning and purpose can often be destructive to the self and to other people that you love. And so, um, hmm. when that happens, you realize, oh, this is giving me some some purpose, but it's, it doesn't feel very meaningful, right? Uh, it feels more like it's yeah. destructive towards meaning. And if anything, it's it's rejecting the value that I find in myself and the people that I love, and saying that those that the, those things don't actually exist. Um, and here's the here's Badu would call that evil, you know. In 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 any effort to like name the infinite to totalize, that's fucking evil, right? So as soon as you try to like quash differences and and things like that within kind of uh, the non-all, so to speak, like that's evil. So that's like the evil within Christianity. Although of course he appeals to Paul, of course, in his universalism, whatever other wrinkle in that. And I think that there's like a, a bad reading of Paul there, although it was interesting. But, but like that's actually you could actually call that evil. Yeah. So I think the the issue here is like, and this is I think a good topic to bring up, even though it's it's pretty abstract because this is what you know it's kind of in the background of uh, what of all these uh, essay here. It's like, what is good and evil, right? And mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, one way to think about it is, again, this Manichaean version, right? Which is there are, you know, um, two oppositional forces that are, you know, transhistorical and eternal and they're constantly in conflict. It's good versus evil. And you got to find out which side that you're on uh, and then, you know, battle until you win. And <laughs> that's obviously bad for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, and one way to sort of react to that which seems like, you know, even maybe Ali did is like, just leave that whole, you know, notion of, of the clash of civilizations and um, just like retreat towards towards reason, kind of get rid of these normative, uh, prescriptive notions. They're all based in fear anyway, right? Like Bertrand Russell was saying. Um, and you can just rely upon reason and that will, you know, um, resolve these contradictions for you. But of course, that, that doesn't actually work. It doesn't give you any that's meaningful or, or purposeful in life. Um, and of course, Ali retreats back to this like fear-based thing, right? Which mm-hmm. is, okay, we actually do need to talk about the, the ultimate clash of civilizations, uh, which is a different, a different thing in the, in the good and evil inputs. And I think she's right to say that simply leaving good and evil aside isn't tenable, right? The problem, again, seems to be mm-hmm. that um, she kind of just... Even it's just a short essay, so who's? You know, I don't want to speak, you know, um, as to like her whole corpus or whatever. But um, thinking again about these transhistorical oppositional civilizational forces, it's just it's just anti-historical, um, first of all, and I don't think it actually refers to anything. Maybe it's like a neat way to like give you some meaning and purpose in life, and maybe that's its great virtue, right? But of course, there's so many vices that come from that, since it's so unrooted in history. And in understanding the social forces of the world and thinking about all the wrong things as being the leading phenomenon versus the trailing phenomenon, that I just think it ends up incredibly confused and usually doing more evil than good, even if it's not thinking itself that way. But that leaves the question, like, what, what do you, how do you talk about good and evil anymore, right? 
And Baju tries to do that. I'm not sure I fully understand how he's trying to do it. But like one thing to think about is, okay, I think it's totally right that when you have a civilizational force or a worldview or whatever, that some social structure, right, that's telling you that the things that you're doing that you know more than anything else are good. And it tells you that it's bad and it's destructive and it's even evil, right? And it's like the force of the devil or whatever, which is what happened to us, right? I mean, the, the way that I think about my own like deconversion narrative or whatever you want to call it is primarily based on like myself and the people that I loved most, people like you and our other really close friends, um, I thought were being treated incredibly unfairly and were being mm. basically gaslit and lied to and told that they're kind of worthless and um, full of evil. And I knew that they weren't. Like I knew that more than anything else. And so I had to sort of deal with the fact that I'm really sure I had this moral sensibility that I'm, I, I understand, I don't know everything about morality, obviously, even at this like young age in college or whatever, but I know this, right? There's some things that I really know, right? And what's mm. being told to me is just antithetical to that. And I don't know how to square it. I try and I try and it doesn't work. So eventually I have to give up one or the other and you give up the one you're less sure about, right? Um, like that's evil, but that doesn't mean that I think that Christianity as a religion is like this evil oppositional force trying to stamp out all goodness in people, right? Right. And right. that means that there's a social structure involved, and the social structure is functioning in an evil way because it's doing these things to people um, that's that's sort of trying to stamp out the goodness in them, right? And trying to like police them and control them in such a way as to make them like almost no longer people, like take away any sense of autonomy and and care for others that they have. And that is evil, I think, right? But it doesn't mean that it's like this um, oppositional force to the good. It's, it's like really close to the good, actually. Because social structures trying to figure out yeah. how people should live together is like necessary, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So thinking about good and evil as being so much more intimately related and like goodness can fall into evil fairly easily given certain, you know, um, a context in the world. Like that seems to me much closer to a, a way to think about good and evil. But of course that's very complex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because this this social and political governance structure that you talk about that that I think we ought to be very critical of as part of of Christianity. It, the weird thing is is that I feel like at least in this expression of hers and in the defense, that's like the only thing that they want to hold on to, right? Without paying much attention to like the conceptions of love and caritas and things like that that are supposed to ground the social and the political. And so maybe that's also where like the danger comes from is it, is it ends up being like a flimsy naivete but wielded in the service of like brute power in the civilizational conflict. And, and that doesn't mean that I think that every single aspect of any kind of, of Christian social or political governance structure is necessarily going to be evil or going to be, you know, this like civilizational clash form. But but I think that's kind of what this is. 
right? And and for me, that's the very thing, precisely like you were saying, that also contributed to my deconversion. Because for me, the thing that stood out the most, and maybe this is ironic considering her position, was for me the thing that stood out the most was precisely how fearful Christians are and how tightly they cling to the social and political expressions in the service of, at least in our context, of American, Western, imperial, capitalist, and kind of even utilitarian conceptions of of culture and politics and, and society, right? And economics. Um, since capitalism and Christianity oftentimes go hand in hand, right? And so it was the fear that drives people to those other social structures that was the thing that first really like, that was my personal, that was like my personal, mm, why are y'all so afraid? Not so much, like yours was I think more of like driven by like this sense of like a deeper sense of, which probably makes sense interestingly enough too, like why our interests are the way they are. Mine was like, stifling freedom and then of course i become like a like a sartre scholar and yours is like no but what about care and you become like a fucking ethical ethical philosopher right moral philosopher so it's like there's a lot that's interesting in there that kind of show like what impacted us in particular and 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 how it impact impacted us in the ways that it has but like i remember that being the thing there were intellectual things that were happening as well alongside that but it was really it was it was all tied together yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was fear that then turned into preservation of power and then wielding of power. And so the irony is, is that when you hear Ali kind of claim and then, you know, Sarab defend the civilizational aspects of the value of Christianity within a sort of like, like, I don't know, uh, new right conservatism. I don't want to call it secular liberalism. What is it? Like a, like a Western liberalism conservative liberalism you know something like that Burkean liberalism i don't know or Bur- Burkean conservatism um uh when when i hear that all all i can think about is is the ways in which it's driven by a fear of freedom a fear of otherness a fear of the unknown a fear of the unwieldy a fear of variation and process and and a fear of not having your voice matter and a fear, you know, like just all the, I could just, there's a litany of these things, but fear. So then what you do is you hunker down into what's comfortable, into the story that grounds you, right? And I see that just as dogmatically totalitarian as the Islamism that Ali is afraid of, which is why I think she kind of, she gives away the game a little bit when she says, you know, that Muslims need a counter narrative and Christianity is that counter narrative because it's almost like she's like mm-hmm. she's like pitching she's like pitching Western Muslims in the middle, straddled between the, which two roads of extremism are you gonna go, Islamism or Christian civilization? But she doesn't see, you know, her advocacy of Christian civilization as a form of extremism. But I think it kind of the way that she's pitching it, it is. It's almost it's almost giving credence to Islamic extremists by being like, yeah, your logic is right, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just on the other side. Like you're the evil yeah. and I'm the good, right? And right. and for good reasons. Like you know, I think that you know women should have you know uh, equal rights or whatever, and you don't. So like I'm on the side of good and you're not. So like it's not exactly the same, right? But it's kind of formally the same. 
in that they in that both the you know the Islamic extremist and um, and the the sort of civilizational Christian or whatever agree on the terms of the debate, right? And it's just like, well, again, they're both rooted in fear, like you've been saying, right? Mm. And the problem there is that you know conservatism always ends up um, enforcing and usually reinforcing social hierarchies. That's kind of the point of conservatism, right? It's a reaction to attempts to equalize social hierarchies um, historically since like Burke, right? Um, and that stems from fear because it's unable to sort of unable or unwilling to think about an experiment with living together with people who are not just like you, right? So better make everyone just like me. It's the only way we can live together, right? And of course, that's never that that has like the the like veneer of of you know freedom and liberty and equality, but of course it's not because it's going to be you know defeating the other or assimilating the other. Uh, rather than attempting to live together with the other, right? And that is ultimately rooted in fear. But I, I don't want that to be like a, a claim that like all you know politics is rooted in emotion or whatever. It's it's not it's not quite that. But I think it's important to point that out because that that sort of fear, while it's rational in the sense that it's like representing things about the world and is is based in a core set of beliefs, right? It's not just a purely um, abstract emotion or whatever. Um, it's important to point out that it has that that root in fear, because I think that that kind of gives away the game. That's like imagine being and, and we grew up with Christianity. I was formed by Christianity. Like my moral sensibility that made me leave Christianity was formed by Christianity, right? It's the it's the morality of like you know the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, right? Right. Um, so like this is not a, a you know Christianity versus something else. It's like an internal division within Christianity, really, ultimately. Um, and what's important to point that out, what's important about that, I mean, is that, look, imagine being attracted to Christianity because it offers you a salve for your fear. Like she, yeah. she mentioned how Bertrand Russell was right to point out that that, that fear of like death and, and hell and stuff is like a bad reason to be a Christian. Well, so is fear of, of the other, right? It's just a different kind of fear. It's functionally end up, ends up being the same. Right. What's attractive about Christianity, I always thought, was like the life of Jesus and the mm-hmm. Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Like you read that stuff and you're like, oh, like we can live together in peace and harmony and like all flourish together and all human beings really just want that. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Like I want that. And when I, the things in my life that are most meaningful are experiences of that, living together with other people with mutual care and concern and engaging in creative endeavors together. Like that's the beautiful stuff of life, right? That's what's attractive about it. But like none of that's here, (laughs) right? Um, It just seems like a poverty of thinking about life. And even though Ali does mention that like atheism doesn't give meaning and purpose to life, what she means by meaning and purpose is like a civilizational conflict to be a part of, not – engaging in, in in a life of mutual care and concern with other people and engaging in creative endeavors and appreciating what other people can do with their forms of expression. Like that's the stuff that matters. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Do you think do you think I, I, no, I, I wanna I wanna conv- I wanna convert and lead to a better Christianity. <laughs> uh, ha, 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 ha. 
Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I always think, too, is that this kind of like civilizational Christianity is actually like the bad form of Christianity, you know? Like, I don't know. Like, imagine reading the Bible and that's the stuff that you get out of it. Like, come on. There's some beautiful stuff in there, man. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, Do you have any kind of like final thoughts on on this stuff have you seen this as being like a new trend that's you know kind of sweeping through the the quote-unquote like new right or whatever else and 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 she mentions you know that like it's like oh yeah people are fucking clamoring for some sort of social meaning so they're you know retreating they're running towards these kind of like small subcultures and little consumer cults and little fucking you know consumer groups that they're all a part of and uh, in, in their fandoms and things like that and they're looking for something and guess what we have something but like like obviously people are looking for something in a world that like Marx would say where everything is solid melts into air right um, so it's like there's like a felt need it's kind of like the similar thing that we've talked about before with like why people are attracted to Jordan Peterson right because he's there to be like yeah you yeah. know society doesn't offer you these things but here are these old world ways of living you know like personal responsibility and, and washing your balls and making your bed or whatever else it is you know <laughs> things like that <laughs> um, making sure your side of the yeah, street is clean which which aren't necessarily bad things you know you should wash your no, balls no not at all you know yeah I'm like, and it's totally right to point out that that modern secular society doesn't do those things and that there's an emptiness in that. And that's right. That there's a good reason why lots of usually young men are attracted to those, that kind of thinking, right? Hmm. That's why the new right is almost entirely populated by young men, Ali being an exception, right? Um, hmm. Is because there's a kind of dearth of waves to be, to be a man in modern society, right? Um, now, of course... The problem, I think, is that, you know, having been in, in a culture like that and sort of trying to, like, try on the masculine virtues or whatever, it's just not fulfilling. <laughs> yeah. It's just as empty and, in fact, directly harmful, right? It's just as toxic, uh, if not more so than, you know, whatever emptiness comes from, like, the secular version where there's no answer whatsoever. Um, so ultimately, I don't – maybe for some people it works out okay and, like, they find a place to – to live and have a meaningful life or whatever. But I think for the vast majority, they don't. It's kind of full of suffering. So it just seems like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I get the diagnosis, but I think I think you killed the patient with your new treatment. I don't know, what, having come into this, like with a, with a certain perspective on, on this whole idea of civilizational uh, clash of Christianity versus the forces of authoritarianism, wokeism, and Islam, like what, what do you think, having talked about it for a little while? Um, do you have any ultimate conclusions? Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think it's going to work because I think it's actually weirdly enough it's like it's it's playing it's playing into the hands of the very thing that they're bemoaning. Hmm. Right? It's it's like it's like when people constantly bang on about, you know, the problems with wokeism and it's, it's like stop seeding the ground to the discourse that you find aberrant in the first place because the more you're distancing yourself from them in this dialectical engagement actually the more you're reinforcing it and it's i don't think that like let's just take ali's like okay you've got western muslims standing between these two seductive you know there's the the temptation to sin on this side and then there's the offer of grace on this side like like no, it's not just those two fucking options. Let's stop framing things this way in the first place, you know. And maybe that comes from 
needing to engage in more nuance and 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 kind of like historical understandings of Christianity, Islam, their interrelatedness together, their synthesis, the the emergence of this thing that we call like Western liberalism or Western kind of uh, conservatism, whatever you want to call it. Um, how do those things? flower out of the Christian Muslim nexus in a lot of ways and in what ways and and what resources were they drawing from for good or for ill and then also in what ways do we need to also recognize just honestly that that this thing that you're trying to preserve this like civilizational bulwark against Islam and and China and Russia that it's not necessarily and, and woke ideology that it's not necessarily some sort of cure to the ills that you're actually that you're actually bemoaning, but that it will only exacerbate them through the kind of superstructural instantiation of fear and through the superstructural instantiation of control, um, which I actually think, here's the irony, I think that the kind of like woke ideological thing that so many people are critiquing is actually an expression of a sort of Christian logic, (laughs) you know? It's (laughs) like the dogmatism that comes from religio that's part of like the in versus the out or based on beliefs and based on like the purifying of yourself as the clean us versus the dirty them like that's actually also part of the very structure that that they're now trying to say is the cure and it's not it will only exacerbate the problems further that's that's kind of what i think yeah I mean, what she's calling wokeism um when it actually is bad and sometimes it is it's it's a kind of self-righteousness that's that's mirroring like christian self-righteousness that's right. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and the point there about history isn't just to know history because you, you got to get your facts right or whatever, right? Trying to be like um, pedantic about it. Like the point is that when you, when you look at the history and you realize there was a time when Islam was at the forefront of, um, of sort of uh, development of, of civilization at the intellectual and political levels, right? And there's a time when Christianity was very much in the back burner and very much um, the sort of, uh, um, like dumb second son or whatever, mm. um, tells you that, well, then that means religion isn't the leading phenomenon here. Like, like the religious organization That's right. is a sort of reaction to underlying social and political realities. Yeah, so it's that the logic means of empire you, or colonization or something, right? There's, there's a bunch of other things that, that factor into it. Yeah, if people aren't free, then their religious expressions are going are gonna to represent that. Right, which again, the, like the very beginning of the essay, she talks about how the underlying principle of the nine eleven attackers was religious and not political. It's like what? <laughs> yeah, that was such a strange <laughs> like, claim. What are you talking about? And again, the point is that it's both because the religious is an ex- political expression, right? Again, meaning religion is the trailing phenomenon. There, it's reacting to social and political realities. So, if there's going to be an answer here, whatever it is, it's going to be social and political and not religious. Otherwise, you're just talking about the symptoms, right? And again, not to say like some vulgar Marxism that religion never does anything or has any causal power. Of course it does, right? But on the whole, it's the trailing phenomenon and it's reacting rationally to what's happening on the social and political ground level. But that's where the changes have to occur. And they can occur with, you know, religious uh, manifestations and religious garb and and whatever, right? Religious language. Of course that can happen. Look at MLK, right? Um, but the point there is just being you, you can't fight a political or social battle of any kind or make political or social change purely at the level of, of symptom, right? Hmm. Which is, I think, also, interestingly enough, I don't think she is trying to engage with it at the level of symptom because I don't think that she ha- she's articulating 
a robust enough conception of a religious tradition. And it's much more that it's just the kernel of its sociopolitical manifestations, right? Which I think creates, which is why then a lot of like Christians would be upset because it does create a sort of like superficial conception of this thing that she's calling Christianity, right? But like even she, I don't think, as much as she's trying to claim that it's about like this religious salvation, that it, but, but, but it isn't, right? Like ultimately she is just trying to articulate some sort of like social political agenda. Yeah, and a very, a very sort of narrow one that's kind of covered yes. over by this this notion that it's a Christian one. Exactly. Yeah. Which here's what I wonder by by covering it over with the claim that it's Christian. I wonder if there isn't like this really clever branding that's happening here. Not even that it's intentional, but here's the irony that I wonder as being part and parcel of a sort of like society of of spectacle, right? In the society of spectacle where everything is branding, um, like even her appeal to Christianity is sort of like a branded version of a social and political mission. And she's using the veneer because it sells well. And I don't even think it's conscious. Oh, for sure. There's a giant, you're seeing this a lot with um, former new atheists, like defending um, Christians, right. Against sort of uh, Islam or whatever else the enemy is supposed to be wokeism, whatever it is. Right. There's a kind of mass, especially of like the intellectuals in that movement, movement towards Christianity in a way that would have been completely like unintelligible 20 years ago, right? Um, for people who thought of themselves as like the enemies of, of Christianity, especially in America. And a big, it, it's very much like a, like a LeBron James, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. It's like, I'm taking my talents to Christianity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like atheism wasn't doing anything to fight wokeism and Islam. So I'm going to take my talents to Christianity and see if that can help out. It's very much like a, we need to have a truce and then like gang up in a super team together. Right. Um, to fight the global forces of Islam and wokeism. <laughs> and here's um, the great twist. They're just playing identity politics by another name. Like <laughs> they're, they're doing the same superficial consumerist like image based aestheticism that they're supposedly bemoaning that like the woke do but they're just engaged in the, they're embroiled in the same thing and that's where i ultimately get frustrated that's why i'm like stop playing the game on the playing field of your opponents or on, the, on uh, like let's take a step back or do some some deeper kind of analysis of what's going on here because if you don't you're gonna just end up playing the same game and that's what they're doing all in the name of like a new freedom right that like the the new the the, this new turn towards conservatism or towards like the preservation of christian civilization is actually the radical thing you know and i can say this because i studied under uh one of the kind of like leading figures in the anglo-american world uh, the Anglo-Catholic world in particular, that articulated something similar called radical orthodoxy, who was probably sitting there just fucking loving seeing all this stuff play out because this is exactly what, like, the whole radical orthodoxy movement is about because they use, obviously, the word radix, meaning, like, the root. So it's, like, it, it's just, like, I've seen this shit before. I've been involved in this shit, you know? And I've been I've been inundated with the world that is trying to articulate this stuff. So I know where it's coming from and I know the the battle lines that it's drawing. And unfortunately, I also think that they don't even realize that they're entrapping themselves. I mean, you know, the people within the radical orthodoxy movement who are the deep thinkers, they definitely have much more like a rigorous 
rigorous conception of things, but like nevertheless, it's still playing the game, you know, at the same level of like superficial socio-political and political economic um, systems. It's still playing the game, you know, at, at that level that needs not to be played at. Yeah, I think you're totally right that it's 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 very likely an unconscious sort of drive, right? And, and there may be some grifters who like it's fully conscious and they know what they're doing. I have no doubt that that's happening like on the podcast sphere or whatever, right? Um, but largely, I think it's it's sort of a, a drift because it's it's just you don't have to like question the very logic of the whole enterprise. You can just sort of switch the variables, and that's much more comfortable than like doing full on subjective destitution, unraveling everything you think you know and rethinking the way the world works entirely, right? Which is, you know, not that it's like brave or courageous or anything, but it's hard and it doesn't it doesn't involve a neat transition. Like it takes sometimes years to go through a process like that and have any idea of like who you are and what you what you value and what matters to you and and stuff like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll be interesting if in like five years time, if she writes another opinion piece, it's like uh, why I am an atheist again. <laughs> or, <laughs> That'd be the real grift, right? Just every five years go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, yeah, why I am now, I read I read Walter Benjamin and uh, Agamben and, um, and I am now, um, I am now a Marxist. Or something, I'm now a post. I'm now a po- I'm, I'm now a post Marxist, <laughs> or something. Um, well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap that up there. Um, I'll post, uh, or, or our editor uh, Sean will post. Um, although I might help with this one because um, I'll have to share the link. But we'll post the the link to this article and maybe the response down in the show notes, so you can rage read if you would like, um, or you can find something interesting in it. Um, of course, as always, if you've got any thoughts about this, you can tweet us because um, it's an interesting or, or email us and, and you can share your thoughts about this, especially if you have some sort of conversion, deconversion history yourself. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, there's great insights that come from that, from going through the trial. And, 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 and part of me wonders if like so many of these people that are like, oh man, Christianity is the answer. And it's like, because they're like just new to it. It's like the convert logic where they can only see through rosy glasses. And it's like, yeah, but like, it's also worth listening to people who were forged in those fires who have left, you know, because they got some insight. <laughs> they got some ideas. Yeah. Um, I think especially if they're not like full of resentment, right, about it, like have some yeah. clear headedness, which I hope we do. Every time we talk about this in the podcast, it seems like we get a message or an email from somebody talking about how, you know, they have the same or, or similar experience and no one ever talks about it, right? So I feel like if this feels like our shtick, I think it's because it hits a nerve. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a, I had, not like I have a huge following on TikTok, but um, you know, it was it was a decent amount of people that gravitated to me because I would talk about you know my my experience as a post evangelical, but without the anger and the resentment that you get from a lot of like like people who've become rabid atheists, you know, or they're just, you can just feel the bitterness and the anger. And I understand that, but you know, I, I don't have that bitterness and that anger and that resentment to such, to such a degree that I think it clouds every single aspect of my ability to speak about the Christian experience. And, and, um, and I think a lot of people were drawn to that because of the videos, you know, um, that I make on there. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's very much like someone who you, know, you meet someone, they're talking about their ex and they're like, yeah, they were awful and the worst and what a crazy bitch and this, that and the other. <laughs> and it's like they never stop talking about it. And it's like, well, I'm starting to think maybe you were part of the problem, <laughs> if not the entire problem there. But the person who's like, yeah, I know we had our differences and whatever. And like, I understand, you know, where they came from. And at the same time, wasn't going to work out. And, and I didn't like how I was being treated or whatever. It's like, hey. You know, whatever's going on there, at least they have some clear headedness about the issue. That seems like someone who's a little bit more grounded, you know? Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, that doesn't sell as well uh, in the world. You know, it's so much cooler to just like flame war uh, with everybody. So, <laughs> All right, sick. Well, let's move on to the final segment of the show, which is called The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us meaning in a world that is devoid of meaning, right? And it's not a clash of civilizations. That's not the answer. That's not the sticky leaf <laughs> this week, I think. Um, so yeah, Troy, Ali is right. We are in a world potentially devoid of meaning. So what are the little sticky leaves that you can like rub together and crunch and feel the joy in that do give you some grounding? You know how I know that life is full of meaning, dude? Because I saw fucking Godzilla minus one. Oh my God. That's how I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. I saw Godzilla minus one, which I'm pretty sure may have like won the week at the box office in the US. Oh, wow. The other week, the first week that it was out, uh, which yeah. is incredible, by the way. And it was incredible. I have not had that much fun in a movie. And I don't even know how long. I guess I did Barbenheimer, and that was pretty damn fun. Yeah. Um, but Godzilla Minus One, if, for people who don't know, it's the newest um, Godzilla movie in, I don't remember the company's name in Japan, but the main one who made the original movie in the 50s and who's made like 40 more. Um, it's their newest entrance. And I, like I've seen the original Godzilla. I've seen some others like Shin Godzilla that came out six or seven years ago. Um, that's kind of like a, a parody of a Kafka-esque bureaucracy uh, in Japan during a Godzilla attack. Um, but I don't, I don't know like the whole um, filmography or whatever. Uh, but I heard that this new movie was very good and the production values were very high and that it was um, very much a crowd pleaser. So I went and saw it in theaters and it was so incredible. Really? Great. I, I, mean, I was thinking afterwards, is this maybe the best monster movie ever made? So I want to have a quick discussion with you in a minute about the best monster movies ever made. Because um, I was having trouble thinking about like a short list uh, and what even defines a monster movie. But yeah, before yeah. we do that, I do want to say that Godzilla Minus One is a Godzilla movie and Godzilla looks incredible in it. The special effects are so good, even though the movie was apparently made for $15 million. Like it had the budget of like a mid-tier rom-com in the U.S., and Godzilla looks way better than any American uh, movie or monster movie that I've that I think I've ever seen. Um, it's also like life affirming, and it's about the triumph of the human spirit, and it's about the irreplaceable <laughs> value of every individual human being, and it's about communities rising up together to conquer impossible odds. It's just like it's like Dunkirk with Godzilla. It's incredible. It's so good. <laughs> Nothing will make you feel better than watching Godzilla Minus One. It's it's great. you got to see it. If it's available in theaters where you are, do see it in the theaters. It's 100% worth it. It's so good. The sound is great. Special effects are great. It's very much worth seeing in the theater. Um, and the most adorable little Japanese girl is in it who's like three years old in the movie. And if you love seeing super adorable children in movies, this one's got 
a S plus tier of that as well. Um, so anyway, that's my sales job for the movie. It's so great. I'm assuming you haven't seen it, right? I have not seen it. And the only thing I really know about it is I saw some screenshot of someone's letterboxed list that was like movies where the third act is just Star Wars, the 1997 or 1977 version. And it was like uh, the new top or the new Top Gun Maverick, which, you know, it's just literally the fucking right. yeah. same same idea uh, going through the ditch and then shooting the, the little thing in the target that's super tiny or whatever. And then I can't remember what the second one was, but then the third one was Godzilla minus one. And I was like, that was my first time hearing about it. So is that, is that accurate? It is accurate. Although I'll say what I, what I really enjoy most about Godzilla minus one is there's lots of lots of lead up to that. And there's a very clear um, moral through line of the movie dealing with life in post-war Japan um, dealing. The main character is a guy who is a kamikaze pilot who faked um, a malfunction on his plane to not have to uh, die once the war had already kind of been lost, right? And so he, throughout the whole film, he's dealing with the, with the shame of not following through on, on his kamikaze mission. Um, and I don't want to say anything else about what happens, but that's sort of the through line of this main character. And it's really depth that you feel his suffering and the shame and everything. And he has to go through relationships and make close friends and like, be part of this this grand community-wide mission to defeat Godzilla, which the government can't do, so the people have to rise up together and do it themselves. That's the kind of the Dunkirk element. Um, and there's a great payoff to that. So it, where the Star Wars, the payoff is just like, because you don't know the whole history of of Luke Skywalker and, and Vader and them all being, the, you know, the, the Skywalker family and the whole, like, you know, the, the legend stuff in it, right? The mythological mm. stuff. Like, you don't know that in the first movie. It's just like defeating the big bad guys who are evil and who are genocidal maniacs, right? Um, whereas in this, it's like, it's very much triumph of the human spirit. Like, the people have to overcome great odds within themselves, not just against the great odds of Godzilla, right? But again, like, amongst themselves. And the the main character has to, like, deal with and, and sort of uh, have this great payoff with his own shame about the kamikaze mission. And, like, they, there's lessons about, again, the irreplaceable value of every unique individual. It's kind of the main sort of, um, like moral lesson of the whole movie, I think. And it's so beautifully done. It's, I think it's just so much richer in that way than even like a Star Wars, which again, the first movie is so great because it doesn't have a lot of that sort of um, mythological stuff in the background. And then it goes into that stuff, right? It becomes much more about this family um, and the whole like Star Wars, you know, the, the rest of the movies together are very much this like family uh, story about, you know, um, the Skywalkers dealing with their own tragic history or whatever, right? Whereas, mm. and that's like, that's all fine and good. I don't think that's like necessarily bad or anything, but I, I, I just get so much more energized and fall much more in love with this like, one-time unique story about these individuals dealing with trauma and loss and shame and finding ways to come out of it in a, in a very like, uh, in a way that, that like wins me over towards their recovery, Right. And their mm. tri- triumph in this really beautiful way. So I think it's, it's richer than just like doing the Star Wars thing for those reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I literally, that was the first time I'd heard of it. And then I think I saw one other thing about it on Twitter. And then now you mentioning it. So I haven't even 
heard anything really about this. I did, however, see the trailer for what is it like Godzilla X Kong or whatever it is, the one that's coming oh, out the American next one, year. Yeah, yeah, and that looks horrible. Oh, it's gonna be awful. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna learn none of the lessons from this brilliant Godzilla yeah. movie. Yeah, that's so exactly. I think that's that's what's so interesting. It which is just like a perfect test case of why it is that the sort of big scale American cinematic machine is just going to it just like never learns and it just keeps pumping out these awful I, I do wonder though. I do wonder if there's like a reason for it. Like like they know that it's bad and maybe they'll make a little bit of money, but but maybe it isn't even about making money it's certainly not about like producing meaningful art it's certainly like meaningful cinematic art it's certainly not about that i have a, a very cynical take about it but it, it it's you know for some other fucking economic i'm sure and financial and and even like internal industry purposes you know to just like continue to like hire certain people and and keep certain mach- machinery moving internally um, and, and that's why this, this shit just keeps getting, you know, riskily thrown out there because on the off chance that it does hit and people, people are drawn to it and they make, you know, they make their money back or something like that, then they're happy because they can just keep going, you know, or they can sell to overseas markets and yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can very much tell that this movie was a labor of love for yeah. the creators. Like they, they, it's, it's clear they infused their own energy to it. I'm sure making the movie was itself a kind of conquering of Godzilla. Right. Um, so yeah, it's okay. Now, now I want to ask you, I was having trouble trying to figure it out. What is the best monster movie ever made? Cause like, okay. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you label a monster movie? Right. So like, is alien a monster movie? Oh yeah. It's gotta be right. Okay. Oh, so that's gotta be the number one, right? That's, I mean, nothing's going to touch that. I, th- I mean, I think Alien's probably the greatest horror movie ever made, and monster movies are a subgenre of horror movies, right? Yeah. Uh, would okay. So, Alien is a monster movie. Do like do like like Vampire and Frankenstein are those those are monster movies, right? I guess. Yeah. Are you talking about big monsters though, like big destructive cataclysmic monsters? That seems too narrow, right? Like monster movies have to. You don't want to narrow it. You want to get like get the sub subgenre at the joints, right? What about Iron mean? Giant? Is that a monster movie? Oh no, it can't be, right? It doesn't. It doesn't function in the way monster movies do. There has to be something like an existential threat brought on by the monster. Are aliens monster movies? That's the question. Like alien, alien, alien is, but I don't think Aliens is right. It's not. So a like attack, movie. attack the block isn't a monster movie. Ooh, maybe. I don't know if all aliens, alien-based films, if they've because like Close Encounters obviously isn't a monster movie. So not all alien-based movies are. And obviously, what about like War of the Worlds. Yeah, Arrival, it seems yeah, like is that a monster? Arrival's not a monster movie, but War of the Worlds probably is, right? And then like Independence Day, I think there has to be for us to think about like capital M monster films, like you said, existential threat and like the the literal capacity to destroy society to destroy to cause chaos and mass all human life right yeah yeah or not necessarily yeah. right because a- aliens a monster movie but it doesn't have that it's just existential threat for the individuals involved 
No, right. because if it if it multiplies, right? That's the whole thread of it. Also, it's not just her. Yeah, yeah. It's but like it, her babies, and yeah. But I think even if even if it didn't have that element, it would still be a monster movie. No way, because the horror of it is the fact that they plant their fucking babies inside of you, and the it's the 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 fear of that yeah, film is also yeah. like a, a a fear of like massive reproduction, right? Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. I'm just trying to think: Does it have to have that existential threat for all of society to be a monster movie? Maybe it does. Because, like, the thing is the thing a monster movie. John Carpenter's the thing. Oh yeah, it's and that, be, that right? has that. Yeah, 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 and that has that. That's see to me. That's like um, an insidious monster movie. Like the Godzillas are like the uh, the explicit direct monster movies. The thing that's like it uh, maybe maybe like like what it follows could that be like an insidious monster movie like it will yeah just it get follows you? as a monster movie definitely is yeah like like it gets you it will find you and you can't there's nowhere to run and you don't even know where it is like that that's you know yeah that's good that's that's good. like a different so, yeah those are like different categories within the monster movie. Yeah, there are definitely going to be different ways of doing it, but we, there's some sort of through line between them, right? Um, that's good. I hadn't thought about it follows, but that works perfectly. Those are probably my three favorite monster movies then, is Alien, <laughs> The Thing, and It Follows. Those are three of my favorite movies ever. I love those three movies. Yeah. Is there anything else like in that tier? Do you, do you like It Follows? I don't know if we've ever talked about it. Oh, Love It Follows. Yeah, yeah. Apparently a sequel's coming out here. I know. I can't wait. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit trepidatious, yeah. but it's it's still, what's his name? David Robert Mitchell, right? Yep. Um, I'm, I'm, I literally, I just Googled a list and I'm like, some of these I'm wondering. Like, here's the thing that's interesting. Okay, Jaws. Jaws yeah. is a monster movie. And right. Jaws might be one of the best monster movies that takes something that is not objectively an existential or society-wide threat, but it makes you right. think it is. You Good, know? right? So it's not actually, but it's so horrifying, you treat it as if it is. Yeah. But like, like people don't go in the water. Like people are afraid to surf because yeah. of it. People are afraid of boats because of it. Yeah. That's, and the monster yeah. has to be... There are some specifications for the monster, right? Like it can't be a, it can't be a, of, of like it can be a minimally rational being, but it can't be rational in the way we can understand. That's part of its being monstrous, right? We can't really understand its reasons if it has any, because like even War of the Worlds, like clearly there are advanced alien species, and so they have, yeah, reasons, but they're not ones we could ever share or understand or find intelligible, right? What about movies like, or even just stories, you know, like like the Frankenstein, Wolfman, Dracula? Those are monster movies in the classic sense. What's different about the, like, the classic monster tale? That's interesting, right? Because this whole idea about can you share the reasons that the monster has, right? Like the vampire stories, especially Bram Stoker, kind of tries to cross that bridge by giving you a glimpse into what Dracula's reasons are. Like he tries to persuade people. You know, not, he doesn't really care about persuasion ultimately, but he does like talk about um, 
how the, the vampiric life is like a better one, right? It's immortality. Mm. It's incredible power, right? So I think that that means that, that it's like a rational being, right? But you can't really share those reasons. If you did, you would just succumb. You would just be like, take me, <laughs> right? So it is kind of alluring in that way, maybe. But then it's no longer monstrous, I feel like. It's only monstrous if you if you're like, I can't find those reasons to be attractive. Those aren't those aren't reasons for me, right? They're just they're monstrous reasons. Um The the thing that I like about these older ones is that it's they explicitly draw out the monstrous within the human condition. Right. You know? Yeah. Like like that's that's what they are really centrally about. And that's what's interesting is they they're the, the they're monstrous in the sense that it's like yeah but we're monstrous. Yeah, I mean the 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 Frankenstein logic is flipping the script, right? We're the monsters. Um, yeah. Whereas like the Lovecraftian monster is the the cosmically beyond. That's right. maybe those are like the two poles, right? The two polar opposites. The, the thoroughly human monstrous versus the cosmically other monstrous. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Here, I will say this. Like, is it one of the greatest movies ever made? No, but it's one of my favorite movies that's in, like, the horror monster genre, and it's Cabin in the Woods. And I think the reason oh, yeah. is because that movie is literally – that's what it's all about. It's all about, hey, every monster that has ever existed is basically living underneath the basement of our – unconscious psyches and we have to keep them at bay otherwise they will destroy existence right and i think that's that's interesting to just think about dude that's just a through line between what we were talking about at the end of the main segment right it's like thinking about good and evil as being these oppositional transhistorical oppositional forces doesn't get to the fact that evil is really within all of us we're all prone towards good and have the potential for great evil given certain circumstances, right? And not, not having a, like a watchful eye on our own um, motives and behaviors, right? It's like the reason why monster movies that, that have that, the, the sort of exposing the monstrous within element, the reason why they're so captivating and insightful is they get at that fact, right? That all of us are capable of tremendous evil, right? And we have to like be vigilant to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm. What about what about like war movies that are or like like westerns where it's like you know the the black hat versus the white hat the good versus the evil the Star Wars you know that kind of thing you know because those they're they're not monster movies obviously but they sort of use the monstrosity of humanity to to create the good versus the evil even if they do it in clumsy ways sometimes yeah I mean it, I mean all films deal with good and evil right in the sense that everything does um but it seems so like what every film monst- a monster movie is that what we're saying no no, no i'm every not doing your stick your stick with westerns but with monster <laughs> movies I'm not doing that um i think the point just being every, every story that's ever been told is about good and evil to some degree right just not in the sense of being trans like oppositional forces that are eternally in combat right um that's just such a narrow view of good and evil um but what's unique about monster movies it seems is that it gets at this idea, the good ones at least, really get at this idea that um, that the monstrous is within all of us. It's waiting to get out, right? And we need to be vigilant about it. And like, you know, Jaws is a masterclass movie, right? Um, 
and maybe one of the you know great paradigm examples of a monster movie. It doesn't quite get that, which is why I find things like It Follows so much more captivating and, and worthy of thinking about. Right. Well, because Jaws maybe is, Jaws is the more love, more Lovecraftian, the radically yeah. other cosmic. Yeah, it is. So it's certainly, more, right? it's more removed from us. Yeah, which is fine, right? And there's certainly elements of like talking about how the world is not, does not function for our good. That's kind of the point that those kinds of movies are getting at, right? Which is which is good and important to think about. But I think it's important to note that like those kinds of movies tend to leave their mark on us in unconscious ways like the fact that if you watch jaws you're probably not going to want to go swimming out afterwards or go into the ocean right rather <laughs> or than even in your ki- swimming pool <laughs> or yeah or even take a shower um yeah but the the movies that stick with you and make you think not just feel are like the it follows or the thing or alien right or maybe yeah. aliens a little bit more on the on the side of um jaws it does but, both. But the, yeah the thing and it follows i think are the are the great examples of the the anti-Lovecraftian or the whatever it is that's the monstrous within. We're going to call that. The, yeah, the human monstrous. Right, yeah, the monstrous within human beings rather than being this uh, uh, purely other external force. The monstrosity of the wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to see the film um, because... Uh, yeah it, it sounds great and just doing like googling while we're talking people are fucking raving about it so um sometimes being involved with those cultural events like the whole barbenheimer thing uh, although i didn't enheimer i just barbed i still haven't enheimer <laughs> i'm curious what you think about that since you've you've been critical before i know of of nolan and in ways that i totally agree with um yeah and there's some things in, in this movie that Nolan makes the, commits the same sins every time. Um, but he also yeah. has the same virtues, I feel like, every time. And I think probably Oppenheimer is like in the Dunkirk realm and the Inception realm of more virtues than vices. But I, I'd be curious what you think. But what, what's, what's so great about Godzilla Minus One is just like this just proof of concept. You can make deeply effective, crowd-pleasing action big cinematic event films with great special effects you could do it right not every movie has mm-hmm. to be some like rehashed thing with a thousand plot points from other movies that no one can follow that has stupid you know wink to the camera jokes that's all produced by an algorithm which which told you the themes of the movie based upon audience reactions to 17 of the previous movies like you don't have to do that you can make great movies that everybody loves and that's universal it's totally possible to do it right and to do so cost effective although i know that the japanese cinema industry is very different than the american one for all sorts of um reasons but it can be done that's the point Hmm. and here's the lesson to learn from this financiers need to fund these projects to let Mm. these artists let their freak flags fly you know (laughs) Rather than trying to fucking contaminate the artist's spirit with the bottom line or, you know, four-quadrant filmmaking or making films that you think are for everybody but they end up being for nobody, rather than that kind of shit, find artists who have proven themselves and be like, hey, 
what's your next project? We're going to fund it. Rather than trying yeah. to squeeze them into the pre-existing IP boxes, be artist-led, you know? Like, that's what good producers used to do, is that's what you find talent. You make relationships with creatives that you are like, I want to continue to bolster this person by giving them opportunities because their voice matters and they're going to keep churning out good shit. That's what you got to do. So that's the lesson to learn from this. So for all of you studio execs out there and all of you financiers that are listening to this podcast, you're welcome. Thank you. And we appreciate <laughs> you in advance heeding this advice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. that I th- I'm pretty sure Godzilla Minus One was number one in the box office in the U.S. Uh, two weeks ago. And that Boy in the Heron, Miyazaki's new film, was number one in the box office this last week. Right? Yeah. These two Japanese films that couldn't be more different. Um, and yet, you know, I know that the director, um, of Godzilla minus one, uh, Takashi Yamazaki is a, um, very popular, uh, director in, uh, Japan. And obviously Miyazaki's the, the master, right. Of, um, animated cinema in Japan and just in the world. Um, artist led man. That's the shit. You know what we need to do is we need to get Gus on the podcast and just be like, hey, can you please just talk about Japanese cinema? Go. And then maybe you and I just step back and let him go off for an hour and a half. What do you think? That would be uh, incredible uh, podcast content for me. <laughs> I mean, I would learn a lot. So I, I, I would actually love that. Uh, so. Um, well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap the episode up there. Um, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawn podcast at gmail.com. Um, we are on uh, Insta too. We just kind of like post out our, our so you can kind of be kept informed of when new episodes are dropped. Um, uh, and then what else? What else? Oh, yeah, you can support us on Patreon patreon.com slash owls at dawn thank you again mark jackson not the basketball former basketball player and coach and executive we're assuming but um either <laughs> maybe way, not <laughs> thank you yeah but yeah who knows um but thank you thank you very much uh to all of our patrons as always uh patreon.com slash owls at dawn and i think that's pretty much it unless there's anything that i'm forgetting to say just one more thing i can think of dude what's that Das Vidani, Amerikanski. Yeah.